welcome back to another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church today. We look at religion, spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. So if you've ever had questions like so many of us about the church today, place of religion, and where we're all headed with our own spirituality, well, maybe you've come to the right place. Our host, well, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, and he planted three churches along the way. He also taught at a prestigious university and was a teaching pastor at one of the mega churches here in Southern California. He even served as an executive coach for a while, but now, now he likes to think of himself as just an aging curmudgeon who never quite ceases to ask the one question on all our minds, no matter what the topic. Why? Why not bring him in and get started here? The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Welcome, sir. I watched a humorous video the other day which showed a horse race with a mock announcer calling out the silly horse names they had made up for this. And it was all about the virus we're calling Corona. Shelter in place is rounding the curve, followed by daily briefings. Here comes Dr. Fauci. You get the point. It was hard not to laugh, but one got weary of the point being made almost until they stuck around for the ending. And then to paraphrase it so it will be proper for radio, they said, and coming from nowhere to take the wreck, take the race is who the heck knows by a head. Confusion. Surely we're in that today in the middle of this virus. And, and even when people listen to this show at another time, oh, the kind of things that can cause us confusion, they don't seem to stop. What's the best thing for the country to do right now? How can we stand together? What's the national government supposed to do? What should states do? What should local officials do? Laws and rules vary from expert to expert. Medical minds intersecting with legal minds and politicians never stopping with opinions. And then it all gets personal like it always does. What do you do? And we talk about the church here. What should the church do? Really, we're all asking, how do we find clarity in the midst of this? So today, we have a guest who is uniquely qualified to help us navigate this subject because he's faced a lot of confusion in his life. Currently, he's the CFO at FCON Laboratories, which means he plays around in the middle of cl clinical trials with money. Now, doesn't that sound fun? Back in the days of the biotech boom, he was with Genentech, and in between, he even worked with churches a lot. His life has produced results so that lots of people seek his advice on lots of things. So let's find out why. From Atlanta, let me bring on Jay Kent Burklow. Welcome to Church Hurts and Kent. John, thanks for that gracious introduction. It's terrific to be with you today and, and to all of your uh, many followers. Uh, I do. Uh, certainly, um, you, you make a, a very good point about uh, this being a time of mass confusion. And 
And unfortunately, uh, uh, we have uh, a whole eclectic group and in my background being clinical pharmacology, uh, I look at things probably a little differently than the average person, uh, even though my subspecialty is infectious disease. Doesn't tell me how to take care of viruses. They're a whole different animal. So I'm not sure of that. I can really speak very much, but it certainly is a confusing time. Uh, there are many pundits who have uh, a variety of things that they think are the right way to go. And and unfortunately, uh, I'm afraid many of them uh, are not qualified enough to make those assumptions and assertions. Well, we, we might push you a little bit on that, but we've heard so many people's opinions about it and are so tired of trying to sort through who's right. Now, I don't even want to talk to anybody about it, to be honest. It's because everybody has an opinion whether, you know, whether they have any qualification to speak on the subject or not. But, you know, can I, I want to go to a place that I kind of apologize for it because my guess is you really kind of don't even want to talk about it, but a time in your life when something happened to you, you were on a Mediterranean cruise with your wife trying to enjoy life because I don't know why you work so much. I mean, you have a foundation that gives away money. You're a successful man in so many ways, but you work and you work and work when you're on a cruise and you're relaxing and they have to get through to that ship to get to you to tell you what. On our first morning uh, <clears throat> being at sea, um, I got a phone call uh, from my son and uh, he informed me that uh, uh, his younger brother, our, our youngest son, uh, had been, um, because he had recently moved in the previous six months or so to uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, it was just an incredible outdoorsman, uh, had done the Appalachian Trail in 99 days, which is 2,470 miles, uh, just an incredible outdoors kid. Uh, the morning uh, he worked in a pharmacy there in Fort Collins and the morning of um, the event he was climbing what they call one of the 14ers, uh, made it all the way to the top, uh, was on his way back down and uh, even though it was June there was um, six to eight inches of snow all on the ground so many of the trail markings were uncovered and uh, as he got to what's called the keyhole on the way back he got into an 80 knot wind event with freezing rain and was just blown off and um, we found out that they that he was missing, and uh, it was several days before they uh, were able to find and recover his body. And uh, you can only well imagine. Uh, both my pa my wife and I have very very small families, so, and I'm adopted, so I have uh, a very limited family as well. And to certainly lose uh, one of your two blood relatives uh, hit us as a family extremely hard, extremely hard. You know, Kent. You were one of those people who reached out to me when my son became paralyzed and one of the few people I could listen to because I knew you understood it. But what you went through was very different than me because I had my son. He just had a body that sucked. The confusion for you, as you said, without much family, being adopted yourself and yet having established such a wonderful family, that had to be terribly confusion. What 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 went through your head? How did you get through it? Boy, that's that's the imperative question. I would I would surmise. Uh, clearly, we uh, were in immediate shock, as you might expect, uh, and we were for for many people who say there are five phases of uh, of suffering and grief. Uh, I would tell you that just to get through the first two are probably the hardest, and we ended mm -hmm. up in that phase that's uh, the numbness, if you will. And uh, that uh, was impending for a pretty long time. 
but very clearly, uh, one of the most important things that happened uh, immediately uh, was we fell on our knees in prayer and uh, just really uh, relished in the fact that we knew God loved us in spite of the fact that we didn't understand this. Uh, but we knew that uh, uh, his life had served a purpose and we relished that we had 25 wonderful years with him. You know, here we talk about the fact that the church can really be hurtful and miss the point sometimes. But sometimes we confuse our problems with the church and our problems with God. You know, isn't it that some people just have a problem with God at this point? Forget the church. Come on, God. Really? My son, or my, I'm, well, not my son, my dad, my dad was an alcoholic and um, he was a loving, loving man, but he still was a drunk. And I remember as I got to know him as just a young adult, because he died when I was only 22, but talking to him about what it was like, he lost a child, the first child. And um, he insensitively said, yeah, you wouldn't be here if we hadn't. I'm like, oh, thanks, dad. That makes me feel meaningful. But um, when he would talk about that, um, you know, really, what is God doing when it comes to life and death? That's really what we're talking about. Is it really okay that God chooses when we live and when we die, right? I mean, isn't this a God issue more than a church issue? Wow, that's a, that's a really important question as well. I, I think you are exactly right. I, th I think it's much more about the understanding of the relationship that each of us should have with God. Uh, I think one of the things that was most comforting to us uh, was in the passage of Isaiah 57. Uh, it really begins with verse 1. and speaks of the fact that, and just to paraphrase from a couple of different translations, it in essence says this, sometimes the righteous or the young are taken before their time. It is because mm -hmm. God has seen calamity in their path that he's chosen to spare them of. Powerful, powerful. We, we, we can't understand God's will. We can't understand his pathways. We just have to trust that um, he is omniscient. Uh, he does know, know all. And uh, we just have to trust him that our life is part of his bigger plan. Uh, sometimes that uh, is hard for us to appreciate and understand. And yet, and yet we look at the blessings of the things we've not had to suffer through. Our generation has not had to suffer through, in essence, uh, a major world war. Uh, as our parents did, or you know, even some grandparents did. Uh, so we've been blessed in, in other ways that uh, we just tend to take so for granted. So hope that hope that's pointed to the, the question you really ask. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I, it, you're, I'm just thinking, though, you know, you mentioned being adopted. You know, you had to start out at a pretty young age uh, processing some of these big issues. At the core of who we are, um, I think, Adopted kids got to go through stuff that just the rest of us don't, right? Oh yeah, no question. And and, and even you know, as a young age, uh, when other kids use it as a point of teasing you, uh, you know, just in that in and of itself. Uh, but fortunately, my parents, uh, even though I didn't have them forever or for very long, really, uh, they they were my parents, and uh, you know, never never missed a beat in making sure that uh, we knew we were loved. And, you know, that's that's all that really matters. You know, I lost my mother when I just turned three 
And so I just hear stories. I really don't have any memories of her, but it's something that people hear that and anybody can have empathy thinking of me as a little three-year-old losing a mother. What could be more traumatic? I used to say I'm a I'm perfect fodder for a psychology 101 classroom of why is this man a criminal and in jail? So I have set my standards very low and that makes life a little bit easier. Uh, but in reality, I've made up stories of who, what a wonderful, perfect woman and mother this must have been who loved me fully because I never knew her. So, and yet at the same time, I had all the consequences of that. And those things play with us into adulthood, even to old age like me. I know you're not as old as I am, but um, uh, you might even have a few years on me, but you don't have to tell. But I want to go back. So you, here you are, um, you've, you've been adopted, you're moving on. You, you really have kind of an impressive career. And some people, when they heard that Genentech thing in my introduction, I think there's some people who want to say, okay, you guys are off into really heavy, dramatic stuff. Can you just tell us for a minute, talk about confusion. You were at Genentech in the middle of the biotech boom, right? Confusion. Yeah, I was on the ground floor, if you will, uh, 40th person in the door. And uh, in essence, uh, you know, the, we were the darling of Wall Street, and yet we were the goats on the other side of People didn't understand the science and it was a uh, very telling time. You know, we were navigating through trying to teach FDA on what biotechnology even was. That's how early it was. And we learned that uh, you couldn't patent a protein from the US Bureau of Biologics. So, you know, here you've, you've spent a couple of billion dollars getting a product, can't even get a patent on it. So it was a it was a pretty tenuous time in the business. And I can tell you, it was very tumultuous from a whole lot of different perspectives. And you can well imagine the, uh, the old, guards of the places I came from, Merck and some others, uh, they really did think we were, uh, you know, we were the heretics of the business because we, we weren't doing chemical synthesis. Uh, we were cloning protein and they, they thought we were a bunch of lunatics. Uh, but sure, they were too far from wrong, but uh, just created a whole new science. And Genentech, of course, is the only company ever awarded a patent for the process. They did not discover the science. They invented the science. And uh, which makes it a very unique trail. And of course, they were very open with their patents, so that's why you see so many other biotech companies today. But it was a it was a very amazing time, and you know, certainly a time that uh, I appreciate looking back on my career as one of the milestones. But now that you've totally gone over all of our heads, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to push you a little bit. So okay. when when you watch, wait, do you have any uniquely funny stories from that Genentech time? Oh yeah, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really an amazing trek because this was a senior management group that had gone out and hired what they believed were the very best in the business and just got out of the way. I mean, they, they were just so completely uh, averse to any sort of a management style that uh, whatever whatever you did was fine. Uh, we used to have a, a, a statement that anything we ever did that uh, basically was unaccepted in another company, it was automatically accepted there. I mean, even to the extent that there was a beer tap in the company cafeteria, if you, if you can imagine that several years later, I mean, it was just open form to whatever you want to do. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, you take that many professionals and experts and scientists and cloners and whatever else, and you turn them loose without any guidance. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the right way to do things. And, I, and they pay some pretty heavy prices for it, but ultimately the jobs got done. 
So doesn't when you when you're watching TV today, it must look really different to you than than you know than it does to the rest of us um, amateurs who aren't scientists. And you're seeing, I, I mean, I am sitting there just amazed at the amount of babbling noise I'm hearing. It seems to me that that horse race thing I talked about is really ends up describing it. I mean, all these people with views, and then they end up being wrong, and then they end up changing their mind. And people don't know whether to wear a mask, not to wear a mask, whether to be with their family who they don't live with. I started out, and they said, this is not the time to go, go see your grandkids. I'm like, really? I have my first natural. I have a couple grandsons from my foster son, but I, I had my first natural grandchild, two months old. And, and they're saying, no, this is not the time to be selfish and grow, go see your grandchild. I'm like, I don't like this. And, and yet others I look at get together as families as if somehow being a family makes them immune from the virus. It's like, no, it's whether or not you're living in the same household. <laughs> what, how are you seeing this? I think, unfortunately, we've allowed uh, those who uh, are not learned and uh, are not experienced and uh, do not pose the credentials of really understanding what this is all about, make political decisions that unfortunately have impacted dramatically uh, the way we've reacted to this. I'm not saying it was wrong, uh, but I'm simply saying that, uh, you know, the first thing you do before you go fly an airplane is you learn how to fly. And uh, we've got people that are trying to fly the airplane who, uh, probably the first time you've ever been on one. And that's that to me is a little bit disheartening. We, we've tended to not listen to the people who are truly in the best position to give us the right answers. And we just, we've ignored them. And to me, that's that's a little bit disheartening. I never would have thought I would have seen science take such a backseat uh, to things that really are science driven. It's interesting you say it because I feel like it goes both ways. I feel like we have um, people in science um, being asked to make political decisions and people in political positions being asked to make scientific decisions or decisions based on science. It's just confusing. Well, I would tell you the the, the people that we consider to be scientists, uh, many of them are public health driven. And uh, public health is a, an entirely different animal than, than a pure research scientist. And uh, we've listened way too much to the public health arena and not listened to the true scientists. That's that's the delineation for me. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Now, now um, I also, and I don't know how in the world did you go from that world to working in churches, helping churches raise money for big, significant, there had to be something. Most businessmen or scientists don't switch gears and go and say, I'm going to help this church raise money because money is one of the things that bothers people most about churches. What happened in your life that you decided to do that? You know, there's a story in the Bible about Saul becoming Paul. <laughs> that's, that's my journey, I think. Uh, of course, my own church, home church, uh, here in the Atlanta area, went through a capital campaign. We were a very young church, only four years old, with 400 members, and we embarked upon a $6 million family life uh, building. Uh, I was asked to chair that committee, which I did, uh, and then it became part of the stewardship team. And um, we hired some outside consultants to help us model, if you will, the stewardship education component, which some people would call fundraising. I would call it anything but fundraising. Uh, we used to refer to it, as you know, as faith raising. Uh, but I got involved in that process, and uh, it became very clear to me as we navigated through uh, what this faith community was doing 
that God had been setting aside uh, all the things that he taught me through the years, uh, you know, the, the management, the negotiations, all the other things I learned. Uh, he was putting all of those together in a package, preparing me for the time that I would become uh, an independent contractor working up in churches and, and did that for about 13 years before I formed my own firm. And only in the last five years after we uh, lost our son, uh, did I get to the place where I knew I could no longer travel. And so obviously I've gone back into the business, but uh, the reality was it was uh, for me, uh, an answer to calling of something that I would have never dreamed in a million years I would have done. Uh, just being obedient and just understanding that uh, God was having me step out, walking away from a job back in the nineties, making $300,000 to a job where you don't know if you're gonna have the next month's income. And uh, it, ch it changes, you talk about faith, let me tell you, uh, you find real quickly that your faith is tested every day in that business in a lot of ways. And, and spiritual assaults to boot. Yeah, I hear. Yeah. And Ken, you, you know, you're obviously a very spiritual and godly man. So let me uh, let me just say it. You must in working with all the churches you did found and all the church boards you interacted with. Those must have just been really spiritually minded, well put together, wise church boards that did were just really encouraging to you. They would never make stupid decisions. Uh, it wasn't like in the secular world where people would get off track, um, right? I mean, church boards are really helpful all the time, aren't they? Oh, you're a lot smarter man than that. <laughs> You've been through this and you know what I'm gonna say. Uh, stunningly enough, I would tell you it's probably just the opposite of that. I'm not sure why it is, and there are, don't get me wrong, there are godly people who care and love about their church and care and love about their, their pastor or their reverend, but there are people who have navigated themselves and positioned themselves into positions on, on boards, if you will, uh, that it's the only thing in their life they've ever done that has the appearance of success. Uh, they have very little qualification. Uh, some of them come with a you know bee in their bonnet, if you will, and I, I would just tell you that that number is probably half and half. I think there's some really good people there, but I think there are a lot of people who feel like if they are serving, uh, that's the same thing as being obedient and they're just not the same thing. Um, Interesting. You know, I come at it from the opposite point of view. I see not that, no, I've seen what you're talking about, but I see some really intelligent, qualified, successful people because they're successful in the world who then get elected to a church board. And, and, and I often say, I think there's a guillotine set up before the boardroom because they have to have their heads chopped off before they go in because there's no way people this intelligent could make those decisions. Oh, that's, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's like they check their brain at the door when they walk in. Very capable, very qualified, but they feel like because they're in the presence of other godly people or godly staff person that they have to bow down and do what that person wants or says they should do. And, uh, you know, the whole purpose of being a capable, qualified professional means you should use those skills to the benefit of the church and not your credentials uh, to just be a yes person. So the person listening and saying, yeah, my board does stupid things. And I've seen that and, and that's frustrated me. That's why I don't go to church. What do you say? Oh boy, here we go. Uh, you know, I would, I would just have to say to that person, you're, you're, you're really, you're, you're putting things that should not 
be in your filter uh, in in the place of interfering with what God may have in store for you. Uh, just if, if you really feel that strongly about it, you need to go to a church where you don't feel obligated to do anything. We just come worship for a while, uh, get your feet on the ground, uh, get get back in the word, get back in the vine, get back in whatever it is you need to be back in. And uh, God will open the doors of when he's ready for you to be in service. If, if you take that kind of an attitude in, uh, you're not going to be of much service at all. In fact, you're going to be an impediment. Mm. You know, Ken, uh, um, time has kind of flown. Um, we've jumped around like crazy. And that's confusing. Shouldn't, shouldn't a show on confusion be confusing? And underneath it, I'd like you to tell us a story um, that kind of can give us hope. Because in, in the midst of it, and I was even say with that, you know, with what you just said, I really appreciate that. You know, there's times to step back and not get so wound up and be into things where you just say, no, it's okay. I'm going to kind of, it's a lot of times I don't know why the leaders are making certain decisions and I really don't have the energy to want to know. Sometimes decisions were made, which I thought were really wrong. Um, and, and want the guy I think of when you were telling your, your story about uh, Genentech and biotech, I was thinking of Steve jobs and where he got so many, his idea at, uh, you know, you'll know the lab name. I forget where he basically got the object theory for his Mac um, that was da-da-da labs. Uh, anyway, but I would look at Jobs making decisions and say, why is he doing that? That's stupid. That's not going to work. You know, and one after another, I was wrong. You know, fortunately, I wasn't in the boardroom helping make those decisions, right? It's We don't have to know it all. But, but underneath it, Kent, um, give us some hope. Give us some hope. You've had to navigate some waters. I think one of the things I would tell you is, is that when we when we see, certainly in the lives that we spend working in life of the church, when we see individual families changed by the simple understanding that <clears throat> never is it ever about money. It's because God has all the money. He has everything. I mean, the reality is, do, do we think uh, his net worth went up or down one penny through this? last debacle in the exchanges that have taken place? But of course not. Uh, what he wants is our heart. He wants us to give of ourselves to the point that uh, we don't challenge every time he gives us something uh, that's his course and mission. Uh, and that's for us, sometimes as Christians, you know, we, we think we know better. You know, we think we, we've got it all figured out because we use worldly comparisons to basically guide our decisions when Many times, as you talk about the decisions in the boardroom, certainly, uh, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers. And I'm very quick to make that point. Uh, but I do believe that uh, God has a purpose for us. Uh, he wants us to be uh, in his love and in his fold, and he wants us to give our hearts to him. And when we do that, uh, I think we get to the place where we really fully understand that life is imperfect and the people around us are imperfect. Churches are imperfect. Uh, but the beautiful part about his love and relationship is, he doesn't care about any of that. All he cares about is us as individuals and how we love him as individuals. When we do that, we become more whole as Christians. Hopefully that helps. Well, Kent, you know, you're imperfect um, in a lot of ways. And I love reminding you of that. I know you do. And, but I know when I needed somebody, you were there. And it wasn't that you were perfect. It's that you were there and that you cared 
And I think sometimes the and in church hurts and is in they care, but they're imperfect. And, um, you know, I I celebrated a very significant anniversary this past week that I want to mention as I wrap up. I'm not actually going to tell you what that anniversary was for, but it was wonderful. More people took time to celebrate it with me than I ever could have expected. A Zoom call included people from all over the country. Someone brought me the most beautiful gift bag filled with food that I've ever seen. They even knew me so well and included giant scallops. (laughs) One person called me from halfway around the world. The following day, do you know what I thought about? The one person I had most looked forward to congratulating me had never shown up or even sent a message. I tried not to dwell on it, but I failed. And then a friend told me he thought the celebration wasn't done quite right and I hadn't handled it well. I tried not to dwell on that, and I failed. It seems to me that as creatures walking around in this world, we have an amazing ability to miss the point in the midst of confusion. We get confused easily, and sometimes we don't help each other very well, do we? I'm reminded of a man who was in quarantine in his rented house in Rome almost 2,000 years ago. Actually, he was under house arrest, but it was for two years and he wasn't allowed to go out to the store. Some friends of his in another country sent him a big present and he wrote to thank them. And these are his words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God in the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, he says, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. That was the Apostle Paul Mm -hmm. and it's worth a thought. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Church Hurts and leaving us as always with a lot to think about. If you'd like to share your thoughts or continue the conversation with our host, Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. You can find out more about their work and all that they do at Church Hurts by come visiting churchhurtsand.org. And next week, yes, there's always a next week, we have a very special guest ready to tackle the easy subject of churches in the Middle East. Don't miss that one. <laughs>